In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. Guys, there are 20 attributes, not just for spiritual leaders, because this is a profile for a godly man. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marked by dust and sweat and blood. Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast, where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood. Each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Our conviction is to call you into the arena of manhood, call you out of the faceless, nameless bleachers, and call you up to be the best version of you, because when a man gets it, everybody wins. Enjoy today's episode. Men in the Arena Army, I salute you. Hey guys, thanks for listening to another episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. I'm Jim Ramos, your host and guide of Spotify's number one podcast for Christian men, helping you to become your best version inside of that stress bubble of life and beyond. Welcome to today's show. Hey, I'm really excited about our guest today. Uh, we had Gene on last week and uh, wanted to get him on twice here because he wrote a book that's really, really impactful. And this guy is going strong. He launched a movement that grew to over 400 churches around the world. He's written dozens of books. The one we're going to talk about today sold over a million copies. And he actually wrote the first ever multimedia study Bible, which we talked about last week. Make sure you go check out that episode about the Life Essential Study Bible. Really, really excited about this. So if you guys are tuning in, you do not want to leave. Stick around, guys. You're going to be excited. Let me talk about today's guest. It's our friend Gene Getz. He was on last week. As you remember, Gene's 87 years old, lives in Plano, Texas with his wife of 63 years, Elaine. Gene spent the first 20 years of his career as a professor for Moody Bible Institute and Dallas Theological Seminary. While there, he wrote the book, Sharpening the Focus of the Local of the Church, which launched into Fellowship Bible Church and into this movement that in 1972 began to grow uh, to hundreds of churches and fellowship-type churches around the world. Gene's efforts over the years have directly impacted the lives of millions of individuals. He's written over 60 books, and most of them which grew out of his experience as a pastor. And today we're going to be talking about his book, The Measure of a Man, which is classic. 40 years after being written, it is still in print, never has gone out of print, and has sold over 1 million copies. And as you know from last week, he has uh, authored the first ever multimedia Bible, the Life Essential Study Bible, which is also the official man Bible of Man in the Arena. So you guys, you can pick that up on our website, or you can go and get that from Gene as well. So we're excited to have Gene on. Welcome back, Gene. How you doing? Oh, yeah, doing good. Hey, it's fun. 
watching you. Of course, <laughs> guys can't watch us, but you're looking good, man. Well, I'll tell you what, it's that bald hair. We have the same haircut, uh, man. That's you right. gotta love it. My my uh my middle son's going bald. I think the other two eventually, but my brother, my, my, the boys have been teasing him. I go, hey, dude, it's not going bald that's the problem. Or it's not being bald that's a problem. It's going bald. <laughs> you kind of, when's that hair going to stop going? That's right. <laughs> so anyway, it's good to have you on again today, man. Hey, uh, Gene, as you know, we're going to take a moment here and we're going to just throw you right into our rapid fire round. Are you ready for this? I'll be ready. Okay. And uh, like every man we have on the show, you did not want to know the questions ahead of time. So you get to wing it and fling it, and I'm sure you'll do awesome. This is what I'm calling our elder round because I think it's so important that our younger guys who are in the bubble can hear from a guy who's been there. I mean, your grandchildren are probably older than some of these guys. I mean, Yeah, probably so. Yeah, you probably have grandkids <laughs> I, in their 40s, I'm guessing. Well, not quite. My oldest, by the way, is a meteorologist here in Dallas, oh, Texas. Wow! Yeah, that's yeah. cool. We hear we get our we get personalized communication on the weather. Watching our grandson. Oh, that's really cool. <laughs> Out here in Oregon, it's we have two seasons in Oregon: rain and construction. So it's pretty easy to be a meteorologist. So, hey, here we go. Here we go. Question number one, Gene: What keeps your fire hot at eighty-seven? Well, it depends on what you mean by fire. Your passion for <laughs> ministry and serving others. Okay. I thought that's what you meant because the first thing that went through my mind was my energy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, physically keeping that in order. And uh, being 87, one of the things that seems to be giving me a little bit of problem are my legs. Uh, even though I've been athletic, believe it or not, I, uh, I hella skied three times in Canada prior to a uh, little back surgery, but what mm -hmm. keeps my spiritual fire going? Um, just uh, waking up every morning and realizing that, as I said on our last program, only one life will soon be passed and only what done for Christ will last. And, uh, and I, I, I would say also just the people around me, mm. you know, the people on my board, the people who believe in me, uh, the people who work beside me, um, by the way, they're also looking to me, and, and that motivates me. You know, yeah. uh, when people believe in you and they expect certain things out of you, uh, I think we 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 need that, and uh, and I, I think that's okay. That that kind of uh, of motivation. You know, I think of uh, <laughs> when I think about that. I think of who invented the electric light bulb, Edison. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody says he's a genius. Well, I'm sure he was a genius, but what they don't realize is that a friend of his revealed to the world that he had invented the light bulb before he did, and 10,000 experiments later, he invented it. And we call that genius. I'd call it ego. Yeah. <laughs> he had to save face. I mean, oh, for sure. It, but there's an element of that, that people believe in you, they trust you, and, and that's very motivating to me. Yeah, there I don't is, want to let people down. There is a pressure... Uh, that goes along with a leader. Right. There's a and, real, uh, real pressure. That's right. I think Paul felt that. I think that was part of his motivation. Yeah. You know, and part of his motivation, obviously, is what he was saved out of. I mean, he said, you know, I was the worst of sinners and, and Jesus saved me and, and I can't believe it, but uh, uh, I'm committed the rest of my life. I mean, that's what motivated him. And I think we all ought to be motivated by God's grace. And I, I've been thinking a lot about that too, is, 
how God protected me in the early years of my life as a little boy, mm. uh, exposed, for example, to things I shouldn't have been exposed to, like two cousins who, when I was four years old, had me out on the highway picking up cigarette butts, you know? <laughs> I was smoking when I was four years old because of these bad guys. Oh, man. You know what I mean? And and I think back, and my fortunately, my parents moved away when I was six. But I saw things and exposed to things that I think about, wow, Lord, you saved me. You, you kept me from stuff that could have happened to me that would have impacted my life. Why me, Lord? Yeah. You know? And I think about that, and I say, Lord... I'm indebted. I'm indebted. Well, when you hear your story of being raised as a dairy farmer in Indiana, uh, having to kind of polish your use of the English language and to see how God has used you on, on a world level, you can really see the grace of God and the sovereignty of God on your life. So it's really cool. Absolutely. So it's humbling, isn't it? It is. And the older I get, the more I'm reminded of it and the more thankful I am. And I really, to answer your question, the more motivated I am. And I, I pray for physical energy to keep up with the motivation I feel in serving, serving the Lord. Well, you and, and I, I realize every, you know, at 87, you got to be thankful every day you get up. And so I'm just thankful for God's grace and mama's genes. <laughs> well, you know, she you, lived, she lived to be 98. Oh, and wow. She was strong right up into the end. So, wow. uh, you know, that's a gift God's given me. So that's that really cool, me. man. Well, I'll tell you what that we talked about Philippians 417. You know, that's a real motivator when you realize that people believe in you and you're working for their reward. Every person right. who prays for your ministry, every person who gives financially to your ministry, and every person who serves in your ministry. You think of the Dave behind the camera, and I think of Dale here. That's right. You know, we got to work hard because these guys deserve probably a greater reward than us for putting up with us for all these years. I agree. <laughs> hey, thousand so, percent. So speaking about your speaking of your genes, Gene, no pun intended. How <laughs> how do you stay healthy over the years? What what are some things you've learned about your health as you've aged? Well, I've been very athletic all my life. And, um, you know, I, I played, um, uh, you know, I played four years of baseball. I have three years of basketball in high school, 10 years of power volleyball. After that, uh, 40 years of racquetball, uh, have skied and, uh, had the privilege of, of skiing, hella skiing in Canada, uh, with my son. And all of that really, um, I feel, has helped me to stay healthy with the genes that I have. Yeah. I know it's not going to create something that isn't there, but with the genes that I've had. And I found that if I didn't keep up my physical exercise, that uh, stress was the biggest problem that I faced. But stress, but exercise helped with that. And I, I was, you know, I was hellscaping skiing in my 70s, and I'm thankful. Then I... Got some back problems, uh -huh. and I've had some surgery, mm -hmm. and uh, that's changed everything. But thankfully, um, I can still walk, <laughs> and, and I can move, and uh, I can stand right here in this studio and teach for two hours and feel great. The only problem is I walk down the hall about 100 yards, and my legs get tired, but uh, go figure. So what, but what, I'm just what, thankful for God's grace. Words you have, what, I had L5S1 operated on. What about you? L5, yeah, and I, uh, 
that's interesting because um, I'm very fortunate to have uh, the surgeon, doctor, uh, surgeon, Dr. Dossett, who's probably one of the best. And he did Romo surgery, you know, oh, quarterback wow. for the yeah. Dallas Cowboys. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I have a really great relationship with him. And by the way, he has a copy of my Bible on his wall in his office. I did that for him and put it in a, a glass case for him. And he's so thankful for that because he's got that along with Cowboys and Rangers that he's uh, done surgery on and guys that uh, have been clowns in the arena, you know, and, and uh, have been hit by a bull and he's put them back together again. And there's my Bible hanging on the wall. So I'm, it's kind of neat. That is really, really cool. So, hey, who is your greatest hero besides Jesus Christ? Who is your greatest hero and why? Tough question, because there are a lot of people that have impacted my life, but I would have to say it, it really goes back to the man who believed in me at Moody Bible Institute, believed in me when I didn't believe in myself, Dr. Harold Garner, mm. who's with Jesus. But another man that really impacted my life is Dr. Merle Tenney. When I came back to Wheaton and uh, got into the graduate school program there, and I was going through a crisis in my life really a crisis of faith. And I got into his course on the gospel of John that was written by John, that uh, we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God and believing uh, we might have life in his name. And uh, I was, it was a period where I'd gone through some disillusionment and I got into that course and I'm telling you, it put the, it put the platform back under me again in terms of my faith, when I think of a man that taught me the Gospel of John as a scholar, a wonderful New Testament scholar, I think of Merle Tenney. I mean, it was incredible how that changed my life, even in graduate school. And I think you mentioned him in your book, The Measure of a Man. Yeah, I think so. He's, uh, he's in there. I don't remember where. I can't find it, but he's in there. I remember reading it early right. on, I think. So what piece of advice would you give your 20-year-old <laughs> self? My 20-year-old self, I would say, be yourself, Jane. Don't try to prove yourself. Uh, be yourself. And uh, find your security in Christ, not in who you are and what you're trying to prove. Because mm. I, I went through a period where I, I realized that I had a lot of insecurity. And I was trying to prove myself. And I didn't need to. And by the way, that's why it meant so much when a man believed in me and I didn't believe in myself because it helped me gain that sense of security so that I could just be myself and utilize the gifts that God had given me. You know, it's really interesting, Gene, because, you know, you've accomplished much in your life. I mean, your accomplishments are enviable, yet you are a humble man. And one of the things that I've noticed is, is a lot of these guys that have done a lot of work for the kingdom as they move through, it seems like they go through this phase, they struggle with their pride. But at some point, a man's got to realize that without God doing this in his sovereignty, we're, we have nothing. And there's a humility right. that comes from that. And I think without humility, you're in trouble. That's right. And I think God allows certain crises in your life to uh, take you off your pedestal. Yeah. You know, and uh, some of the greatest lessons I've learned when I've been reaching up for the bottom, you know. And uh, realizing, except for the grace of God, you know, I have nothing 
but he's gifted me. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that balance is very important. Self-confidence, but realizing, uh, that we're in Christ and humility is, is the key because we really understand it. How can we be arrogant? I think, don't you, Jim, don't, the basis of pride a lot of times is insecurity. Oh, for sure. It's insecurity. For sure. And the more secure we are in our in the Lord and in ourselves, you know, what's there to brag about? You know, what's there to be proud of? You know? Yeah. Uh, you just realize that, hey, it's God's grace. And, and I've had enough experiences where God's brought me off my pedestal that, I don't want that to happen again, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. I want I want to serve him and be humble. Well, we talk about the pressure yeah. of being a leader. <clears throat> what we don't realize is without our financial, we're a nonprofit organization, so without our financial people, without our prayer people, without our people in ministry, there's no way that this could ever happen. This is not a one-man show, and it's a problem when a man thinks it is. That's right, you absolutely. Know? We got to be careful with that. Hey, what's the biggest regret of your life? Biggest regret of my life. I really touched on it, I think, in our last program, and this is basically um, I wanted to be a great husband, and I worked hard at being a good husband, but I didn't realize that I was also being insensitive mm -hmm. because I was so busy and so occupied in what I was doing and taking for granted what my wife was doing behind the scenes in supporting me through all of this. And if I had those years to years, probably the first 15, 20 years of my marriage, I've been more sensitive. Now, if she were here, she would say, Gene, you were sensitive, um, but you, you were ignorant. <laughs> you yeah. just didn't realize what I was needing. And she would also, bless her heart, say that I just wasn't communicating enough of what I was feeling and how I was feeling that, wow, you know, when is the pressure going to stop and the family becomes first? And I guess, you know, that's one of the greatest regrets. Even Billy Graham, you know, at the end of his life, he was asked, what would you do differently? I'd spend more time with my family. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I'm just thankful that I, I learned that fairly early in my ministry. And I, I just have to tell you one interesting story that uh, my son, a wonderful kid, um, and uh, he's, he's a little over 50 now, but I felt that I was so busy as a pastor and we had services also on Friday night. And that's when he played football games. Oh man. It was on Friday night in high school. And I missed so many of those games. And, uh, and I knew that he wanted me there and I, I realized that there was just some kind of, of um, something he was feeling. And uh, I went to him one time and I said, Kenton, and by the way, he at that time he was in Colorado on a racing team, uh, Texas boy racing in Colorado. And I said, you know, Kenton, I feel like I missed so many of those games and I want to take off time just to be with you. And I did. I took a whole month to go up and, just be there while he was training and go out and I didn't run the gates with him, but I went beside him and I, I was there. And one night I was talking, I said, Ken, I, I just wanted you to know that 
I want to make up to you what I, I failed to do when I was, when you were in high school and so active, I missed so many of those games. And he looked at me and he said, dad, you can't make that up to me. Mm. Just be here now. Wow. And I thought, whoa, what he was saying was, I want you here now. That's what's meaningful. Not you're trying to make it up to me. Yeah. See? And I thought, what an insight. And if he were here, he would share how that became really significant in our our life together. In fact, we wrote a book together called The Measure of a Young Man, uh, which we don't talk about very much. But, uh, uh, you know, that was a great learning experience for me. I appreciate so, that. I am appreciate I answering that. your question? Yeah, I appreciate it. No, <laughs> I'm sitting there going, man, I coach my kids in football and and in our family, you just don't miss football games. And so yeah. when you say you missed it in a Texas football game, I'm going, oh, man. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you what, I missed a football game, one football game. I was in te- uh, Colorado speaking, and I'll tell you what. Uh, well, I just, and you know, I got to say, Jim, it was my fault because it was a Friday night service. And any one of my elders would have said, Gene, go to those games. I was so committed to that ministry and to those people that I neglected the ones I should have really been first committed to. And that was my son at those football games. I did it to myself. Yeah. The the elders weren't putting that pressure on me. I was putting my pressure, putting pressure on myself. Oh, I understand. So this may have been already answered in the last question, but what piece of advice can you give our men in the arena as they raise their families? Well, I I would say, first of all, you're going to face a challenge because you're the breadwinner. You're starting out. You got all this pressure. You're busy all day long. And it's really tough to come home and have energy left for your family. But somehow, some way, you need to have energy left for your family. In some respects, they need the best of your energy. But the problem in our culture is they get the leftovers of our energy. Yep. yep. And, and so consequently, that was something that, that I, would, I would really um, say, men, somehow we got to work through that. Because you're going to face it, especially in the early years of your work when you're trying to establish yourself. Because, it, you know, it's wall to wall. Yeah. So is your family. So how do you maintain that balance? And that's something that we have to give attention to. Otherwise, we're not going to neglect it. And um, uh, anyway. Yeah, I think what you're saying, Gene, is what we have say to these guys on a very, very consistent basis the 6 o'clock p.m. to 9 o'clock p.m. window is really the measure of where they're going to see their value as a husband and father. That window, yeah, that window. It is because they're going to, that's when they want to talk and that's when you want to just vegetate. Yeah, we've got Because you've been dealing with problems all day long. Yeah, we've got to find a way right there. That's and right. That's, that's even right. if it's sit on the couch for half an hour and just regroup. Or what I did, ironically, is I would come home and uh, I would cook. I, I was the I would go in the kitchen and I would cook dinner because for me, I loved it. I was a cook in high school and college. And for me, it was a time to contribute to the family and to say, we're going to have a dinner meal together. Yet I had 30 minutes to detox. And that's great. Yeah. My family would say, Dad, get out of the kitchen. <laughs> no. 
I know it just it works really well. For, it worked well for us, and so That's and we great. and so. But that six to nine window is so important. So hey, Gene, uh, I'm I'm not gonna ask you to tell your story because you did that last week. I'm going to tell our mm-hmm. listeners, go over there and listen to the last week's podcast episode. It is outstanding. You guys don't want to miss that episode. But I'm holding in my hand, Gene, a book you gave me in Albany, New York, called The Measure of a Man. It has 42 uh, li- uh, video links uh, through the QR code to your teaching. There's usually one at the beginning of the chapter and one at the end of the chapter. And so Correct. really do appreciate that. And uh, it's 20 attributes of a godly man. And when you handed this to me, I remember you got a kind of a sneaky look in your eye. I'd never met you before. And you said, you know where this book came from? And I said, no. And he goes, right. You said, right out of the Bible. And I was like, what is he talking about? And then I went through this and I, you literally, literally took the 20 qualifications as a, of a spiritual leader right out of the pastoral epistles, and you put them in a book, and I thought, what a stroke of genius. So can you walk me through how this book came about in your mind? Walk us through the story of of The Measure of a Man. Well, basically, it ties in with my time at Dallas Seminary when I was really uh, challenged by the students to really take them through what the Bible really says the local church should be. And as I shared in the last podcast is that uh, uh, as a result of that, I wrote a book I never planned to write, which was sharpening the folks of the church, which led me then to start a church I never planned to start, which was the first fellowship church. And then to become a pastor, which I never thought I would. And by the way, I've often said, I spent the first 20 years preparing people to do the ministry, 13 years at at Moody, seven years full-time at Dow Seminary. But I've spent the last 40 learning how. Oh, that's funny. And, and, And by saying that, I don't want to. I don't want to, uh, you know, reflect on my fellow professors. But you know, it's one thing to teach people how to do the ministry. It's another thing to do it. Oh, for and sure. The greatest lessons I've learned have been as a pastor. But what happened is when we got, I started this church, and I knew how important men were in the leadership, biblically speaking. Women too, but men have a very special very special role as husbands and fathers, but as spiritual leaders in the church. So I said, guys, I just gave an open invitation. Let's have a Bible study at the downtown. uh, It was a motel, the downtowner. And let's, um, let's meet for Bible study and then have breakfast and go off to work. 25 guys showed up. Wow. And I was thinking, what do we study? What, what, What should we do? So I thought about these attributes and so I, I said, guys, there are 20 attributes, not just for spiritual leaders, because this is a profile for a godly man. What Paul was saying there in First Timothy and Titus to these men, it's great for men to want to be spiritual leaders, just make sure they're mature. And here's the profile of maturity for a godly man. And so I said, let's take one of these a week. And they said, great. But I said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to lead the first one. And it was uh, the, the concept of having a good reputation, being above reproach, a good reputation. And I took them through, for about 30 minutes, the biblical basis of that. Passages like uh, uh, when Paul got to Lystra, the brothers there were speaking of, Timothy was well spoken of. He had a good reputation. Why? And I talked him through these passages. And then I said, guys, let's talk now about how we can develop a good reputation. So we'd spent 
30 minutes on talking about how to apply that. Then at the end of that, I said, now here's what I want to do. I want each, I want volunteers to do what I did and you take the next quality. And so I had guys volunteer and I modeled it for him. And then what I did and the rest of the study was just to fold into the group, not as their senior leader, but as one of them. And I began to uh, uh, journal what I was hearing. And to be honest with you, you know, I'd been in the ministry for, you know, a number of years and I'd never studied these qualities in depth. And here we were studying it with a group of guys. And I was noting these things and it, it was changing my life and it was changing their lives. We were very honest. There was openness and um, vulnerability. Well, we were about six, seven weeks in and a guy by the name of Bill Gregg, who was the president of Gospel Light Publications, uh, they had a, a subgroup uh, that was a, a book publisher. And uh, I knew him quite well and he knew me and he heard about the church and how God is blessing it. Came to Dallas. He said, Gene, I want to, I want to meet with you. So he met me at the office. He said, Gene, I've heard about the church. It's growing. What's happening? Uh, update me. And I said, well, Bill, here's something I'm doing right now. And I had a notebook and I opened it on the notes that I was making, the journaling from this study. And I, I kid you not, Jim, he said, uh, Gene, he looked at this for about a minute and he said, I want this as a book. Hmm. Would you write a book Wow. on these qualities? And I said, well, I'll pray about it. And then he turned to the guy next to him. Dave was his name. He said, Dave, do you have a contract? And he had, he was his acquisition editor. He pulled out a contract from his briefcase and handed it to me. And he said, Gene, I want this as a book. And uh, so I prayed about it. And by that way, that's an author's dream. Oh yeah. Tell me about it. (laughs) That's an author's dream because it's really difficult to, you know, get a book published today because the market is flooded. And so I was honored about that. And so I, I said, yeah, I'll do it. And so I took each of these 20 qualities based out of these studies and uh, using the input from these guys. And then I refined it all and put it into this book, which is called The Measure of Man. And would you believe this book has not gone out of print in 45 years? And what I said to you when we met the first time is, uh, why has it been so successful? Yeah. By the way, it's in 30 languages at least. Oh, wow. And I said, it's not because I wrote it. I borrowed the outline from Paul, and we know where he got it, directly mm-hmm. from the Holy Spirit. I just brought it into the 20, 21st century, uh, a biblical criteria for measuring maturity, and you can go anywhere in the world, and it applies. I don't care what part of the world you're in, these qualities are, are universal truths for every man who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, you know, it's really interesting. I've had quite a bit of discussion at my local church about what an elder, qualifications of an elder. And so we've had a lot of discussions about the things an elder is supposed to do. So I went to your book. I have another resource I'm using and the Bible. And I came away going, listen, there are 20 qualifications of an elder and none of them tell us what the elder is supposed to do. That's right. What he's supposed to be. <laughs> yes, they're all about what he's supposed to supposed be. To be. And- Absolutely. <laughs> and you know, here's an interesting thing, Jim. I went through ordination way back when, you know, 
when I was in teaching at Moody and they had this ordination council and every, they asked me all kinds of questions. One of the questions was, Gene, explain the great kenosis in Philippians chapter two and what does that really mean? And they talked about the second coming of Christ and my views there. But not one of those men asked me if I measured up to the qualifications of a spiritual leader. That's where Paul began. Now we're to have correct doctrine, but Paul began with these qualities, what he's supposed to be. Now inherent in these qualities is your knowledge of scripture, but I think we've missed something over the years. Well, I, I do too, Gene. Now, when you were at Dallas Theological Seminary, that is, I don't know if it is still, but it was at that point all male, correct? Yeah, it was when I, yeah. And so- That changed, and it has changed greatly. So we're, so, so we were at that point, the point of this book, we were addressing men at DTS. And, you know, it's really interesting because I just did a sermon at my church this Sunday, and the sermon was called, When a Man Gets It, Everyone Wins. And in that sermon, I go through the history of the church. Uh, nine out of the top, the ten most influential people in church history were men, uh, according you know again online search. And and in the Bible, an overarching theme in the Bible is that whenever God set out to do a history-making, world-changing kingdom work, He started with a man almost every time in Scripture. Abraham, Moses. Joshua, Samuel, David, Jacob, no, Jesus, Peter, the yeah, disciples, Peter, James, Paul. John. Yes, over and over no. again. But here's the thing, and you hit it. You said somewhere we have missed it. What I don't understand is why churches don't start with men. We've missed it. Uh, and it's not that we're against women. Uh, I think we've just neglected to train and equip men over the years. Agreed. Um, we, we've missed it. And and the other interesting thing in our culture is that who have been the most ardent students of the Bible in small groups and it's women. Correct. And I are we intimidated? Is that the problem? That women are doing what we ought to be doing? Uh, not that they shouldn't be. What do you think? I mean, what? I, well, here's what I think. I think um, I think there's a couple things, Gene, that aren't politically correct, and I don't want to stand on these too long. I think, first of all, a lot of guys that fill the pulpit today are guys that never in a million years would have attracted. They were never guys that had influence over their peers, their male peers. They were intellectual. They were highly intelligent, but had no leadership gifts and abilities. Seminary doesn't teach that. It teaches theology. So they come out and they go, whoa, I, I don't understand, relate to, or have the respect of men as a man, but it's really easy to use intellectualism to attract women. And I think that that is part of it. And I think the other thing, quite frankly, is men are really stubborn and men are hard to win to Christ. But when you win a man, according to 1997 Baptist Press survey, there's a 93% chance you'll win their family. And in scripture, Three out of four times when a whole household was saved in Acts, it was a man. So I think that when a man gets it, we see great influence, but men are so stubborn and they're hard to reach. And it's easier to build a children's program or a youth program or a women's ministry and reach large amounts of women. But when you reach the men, it just changes the whole culture. Oh, it does. Maybe we could add another S there. You say stubborn. How about stupid? 
<laughs> hey, I'm okay I'm, as a I'm man. Make, I'm, make, I'm making fun of myself. I, I'm like, I'm okay with you saying that to me. <laughs> hey, stupid is as stupid does, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, well, hey, so speaking of, well, let's go with the word ignorant here. So you base this book off of the pastoral epistles. For those of our guys reading who don't have understanding, can you explain what those are? Well, the pastoral epistles were written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, two of them were written to Timothy. Uh, Timothy, uh, he wrote the first one to Timothy uh, after he got out of prison the first time, uh, left him in Ephesus, and uh, then wrote back to him on how to establish that church and how to deal with men that were immature. And that was one of the purposes of First Timothy. And then he wrote to Titus. Uh, Titus was next chronologically, and he left Titus in Crete, one of the most pagan cultures in the world at that time, uh, to establish those churches and appoint spiritual leaders. And so that's why Titus begins similarly to what he said it, in First Timothy 3. And then when he was back in prison, in the inner prison, under Nero's watch, he wrote Second Timothy. That was the last book that he wrote. And that's where he said, I fought the good fight. I have finished the course. So basically those books or letters were written to two men who are really involved in establishing the local churches. Mm -hmm. And one of the strong emphases was make sure that you've got mature men who are spiritual leaders, but he didn't neglect women. Because right there in First Timothy 3, he refers to what I believe are women deacons. And Titus refers to the older women, should be this way, who can teach the younger women. So there was a strong emphasis on maturity throughout the body of Christ. But Paul was definitely instructing these two guys who weren't permanent leaders in these churches. These were guys that were establishing these churches and appointing permanent spiritual leaders in those churches. And so that's why you see the emphasis you do on maturity uh, in these letters. That's yeah, why we call and, them and, the, the pastoral epistles. Yeah, and we're not trying to downplay a woman's role. I mean, in Romans 16, we read of Junius, or oh. Junia, who was outstanding among the apostles. We hear of Phoebe, who was a, a deaconess in Centrea, I think. Centrea. Centrea, thank you. And then yeah, for, it's right there by Corinth, yeah. Well, then we have Lydia, who had a church in her home, and when she got saved, her whole family, her household was saved. And then Priscilla. Priscilla, who, absolutely. Well, four out of six times, her name is mentioned ahead of Aquila's. And so, right. some people argue that she wrote the book of Hebrews. So I think it was Apollos, but I can't prove that. You thought it was what? <laughs> but, who? I think it was Apollos. I think Apollos wrote oh. Hebrews. But she was the one, Priscilla was the one that straightened him out theologically. That's yeah. So God elevated women. So we're not here to downsize women here. We're just saying men have a huge role and a huge weight on their shoulders. And God, if you're a man, he's calling you to be a man qualified to lead. And he wants to start with you in impacting your family. So I'm going to go over, uh, Gene, the 20 qualifications of spiritual leadership. And because people use different wording, I've just pulled them right out of your chapters. Okay. That's great. And by the way, Let's just clarify now that these aren't just qualities for a spiritual leader. Thank you. They're qualities for a man of God, a father, a husband, single man, 
But Paul is simply saying, Timothy, Titus, if a man wants to be a spiritual leader, that's great. Just make sure he's mature. And here's how you'll recognize it in a man of God. And I want people to really know that. It is the truly the measure of a man. That's right. And and it should be the goal of every man to be biblically biblically qualified to be an elder in his church. Would you agree? And that's what makes it well, and that's what makes a good husband and a good father. Absolutely. And so start there. Yes. I want to be a good husband. Here it is. Yes. I want to be a good father. Here it is. Yeah. And I'm in process because Jim, not uh not any one of us is going to measure up to those qualities totally until we're with Jesus. Well, yeah. It's that process where Paul said, forgetting what is behind, I press on. And I, whoever's listening in Boy, don't get discouraged. For sure. With this with this list. Uh, welcome to the club. Welcome you to know? the arena. <laughs> That's right. There well, we and go. Paul, when he says press on, as you know, in verses uh, 12 and 14, that word in the Greek is dioko, which means to hunt after or to pursue as in attract, you know, a runner, a runner or a hunter yes. pursuing. And then, but I go back to Philippians 1, 6, which I love, which it encourages me in those moments when I'm uh, hitting 18 out of 20. <laughs> and it says, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work on you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So it's Amen. a huge encouragement. So I'm going to ask you, uh, I'm going to read the 20, and I'm going to ask you which one resonates the most with you, Okay. All right, you're going to read through all of them, and I'll I'm just gonna, listen, right? I'm going to yes, I'm going to make an attempt here. So here we go: faithfulness, right. above reproach, prudence, husband of one wife, temperate, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not pugnacious. So we have a bunch of knots right there. Gentle peaceable or uncontentious, free from the love of money, manages his own household well, loves what is good, just, holy or devout, and finally, self-controlled. I think I got them all, huh? You did, right? Is there one, uh, is there one there that you go, this one is kind of this is the one I see most guys struggle with. This is the one that kind of rises to the top as a struggle with men, as I've witnessed over the last 40 years of ministry or 60 years of ministry. Well, um, you know, I was asking myself another question uh, prior to that. Maybe we can come back to it because there are two that perhaps are the most meaningful to me and yeah. it's respectable and able to teach. Um, but the one that, men struggle with the most in the true meaning is being a man of one woman, moral purity, because yep. that's what it means. A lot of times that's misinterpreted uh, as being divorce. I don't believe he's referring to divorce and remarriage. What he's referring to there is, and it can be translated, a man of one woman. And why would he say that? Well, first of all, in both profiles, First Timothy Three Titus 1, he begins by saying a good reputation. That's what it means to be above reproach. And then in both lists, 1 Timothy, Titus, he says a husband, one wife, husband, one wife, or a man of one woman, a man of one woman. Why would Paul say that? First of all, 
it means moral purity because here was the problem. A lot of the men, the first century world, had three women in their lives. They had their wife for childbearing. They had a slave girl in the back room for fun and games. And they had a prostitute at the local temple. His wife knew all about it. And, and basically, uh, when Paul came to these cities and preached the gospel, this was a whole new concept. To be a man of one woman. Wow. That's cool. what, Paul was, what Paul was saying was, guys, the other women got to go. It's your wife, only your wife. A husband of one wife, a man of one woman. Now, we, we camped on that when we talked about that. First of all, that is the most significant way to build a good reputation. That's why Paul put it at the top. Hmm. If you can't trust a man morally, you can't trust him. Yeah. You cannot trust him because he'll lie. He'll look into the camera and he will say this. I'm going to say it one time. I did not have sex with that woman. I've heard that somewhere. Weird. And I knew he was lying through his teeth. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen it consistently. If you can't trust a man morally, you can't trust him. Now, secondly, we all in the world in which we live today as men are faced with sexual temptation, particularly through the prevalence of pornography. Yep. As you know, it's a very common problem. And as men, we really need help in that area. We need accountability. We need commitment to moral purity. And we spend a lot of time on that. And uh, in answer to your first question, what pops out as what men need, I would say that's what I observe is one of the greatest areas of need among guys today because we're all tempted. And it's and everywhere. We need, and we need to develop relationship with our wives. And I, I tell a story in the book, you know, where I remember, and this is quite a few years ago, I was ministering in Los Angeles, ministering all day long. I went into the hotel that night after teaching the word and there right on the TV, that's when they had Spectradyne. It's, it's different now in terms of pushing buttons. But all it would have taken was to push a button, and there's hardcore pornography. Mm. Was I tempted? I was tempted. But I had to, we'd really worked through a lot of these issues with Elaine and myself talking, developing our communication. And I picked up the phone. I said, honey, why am I so tempted? And she said, well, that's easy to understand. You're a man. <laughs> that's true. You're a man. Now, she could have said, you shouldn't be tempted. She didn't make me feel guilty. She didn't give me permission. We prayed together. But she says, you're a man. That's why you're tempted. And you're tired. And that factors in. And we prayed together. And I remember that night, I, I went to sleep with Bible, reading a Bible. I woke up in the middle of the night, Bible's over my chest, kind of symbolically there protecting me, as it were. But what I say to guys, you've got to develop communication with your wives. And you can't do that overnight. True. Because every one of those women is different and you gotta lead into this. They've got to, they've got to have help. And that's why I say, sit down and have them read the measure of a man and and give you feedback in your life as to where you can improve. And then talk about these things and open up that communication where they can understand that you're a man. And you are tempted. And it's not threatening to them that you're tempted. It's not threatening. They know that. But together, 
you're overcoming that and you're faithful mentally, morally. And uh, guys really respond to that. Well, and you know, what we tell guys is we've partnered with an organization, just like we've partnered with you and the Life Essentials Bible, we've partnered with an organization called Covenant Eyes. We have the link on our website and and we just tell guys, man, if you get on there and just protect your computer, all your devices and make your wife one of your accountability partners, it's amazing how many people Jesus has healed right there. (laughs) But you know, one of the things I've noticed, I've been married 27 years to my wife, and uh, we are a little better at having this discussion, but I think one of the big issues is that women don't realize what kind of scoundrels we really are, because their brains don't think like ours. Absolutely not. And, And if she can realize that my looking or my struggle has nothing to do with her, but let's talk through this, I think a lot of guys, if they could have that dialogue with their wife on a deeper level, I think it would help them in their journey oh, to have I, I know complete moral them. purity. Oh, absolutely help them. And I remember one time a group of guys were uh, going through the measure of man and through this particular chapter. And there was one wife who really was threatened by the fact that a man could ever be tempted. And I remember they brought her to a <laughs> session and talked with her and she did she did not have a concept of temptation without sin. She did not understand that a man responds differently to what he sees. Mm -hmm. When David looked down and he saw Bathsheba and it says she was beautiful and she was bathing, he wouldn't be a man if he weren't tempted. Yes. I'm 87. I'm kind of proud of the fact I can still be tempted. Yeah. But that doesn't mean I should sin. Where David made the mistake is he didn't turn away from that. He didn't go to the other side. He didn't go back into the castle or his uh, temple or where he's living. Yeah. Uh, temptation is not the sin. It's determining you're going to make a decision to pursue that. Now, only God knows when it becomes sin. But I want to say when you deliberately pursue it for sexual gratification, that is a line where Jesus said, that's adultery in your heart. It's not the temptation. There's a line you don't cross. And women have a tough time understanding that. I think more and more understand today because there's great books written by women about it, two women on how to understand that. Yeah, if a woman could engage in dialogue with her husband, we have a lot of women that listen to this show, and I would just tell women, engage in dialogue with your husband. Get inside of his head, you know, in the living room when there's nothing going on, and just dialogue with him. I think that'll really open up some insights that'll help the marriage. Right, and and just think how encouraged I was when my wife said, because I was disappointed in myself that I was tempted. And she said, look, you're a man. And she prayed with me, not giving me license, but how encouraging that was to me, you know? And I tell men, I said, the fact you're tempted, that doesn't mean you're some kind of a sexual pervert. You're, you're responding the way God made you, but yeah. he also wants to help you not sin in the process. That's a wonderful gift God's given you to utilize with the woman that he's given you, but the temptation is not the sin. It's the lust. And the lust is the next step. 
And that is what we, where we really need each other. We need help. Yeah. Encouragement. That's why I recommend, you know, guys having accountability. Oh, and I know sure. that's your, that's your, your main theme, you know, in the violin. Oh yeah, for accountability. sure. So now what I, a point of qualif- a clarification here. So if a man is divorced, I know we're going to, I'm just going to take this passage, husband and one wife and really beat it up a little bit. So if I'm a, I'm not this man, but if I'm a man who was divorced because my wife was unfaithful through adultery, or if I'm a man who was divorced before I became a Christian. Or if, I'll complicate it, or if you committed adultery. Before you were a Christian. Yeah. Or after. Explain that one. Okay. <laughs> Just think about the problem that the Apostle Paul had and Timothy had and oh, Titus yeah. had yeah. to find men who are morally pure, who hadn't been living with women all over the place. Okay. The fact is that um, I, I, here, here's what I believe. What Paul was saying was you should be a man of one woman right now. You're faithful to your wife right now. The past is behind you. But the next question is, what's your reputation like? Uh, yes. I can show you Thank a you. man who has been divorced And I can show you a man who has been immoral, but I can also show you a man today that has a good reputation. He's not talked about in the community. He has a great reputation. He's married to one woman. He may have married a second woman. He's faithful to her. The sin is behind him and he has a good reputation. And that's the key is reputation. Are you faithful to your wife? Are you a good husband? Are you a good father? Is that how people see you today? Now, if you, you know, been all, if your reputation is bad in that community. Yep. And see the problem in the New Testament world? They all lived in one compound. Yeah. So you'd have grandpa, grandma, grown kids, married, children. And that's, by the way, what it talks about being a manager of your own household. It was that compound. You know, it wasn't a nuclear family as we think today. So we need to understand those dynamics. But it takes us back to reputation. What is your reputation? That's good. Is there one of these qualities, qualifications, or measures that you see most often overlooked or ignored in the church? Well... That one, I think we just talked about, but you know, this, you read this list and uh, one of them that pops out at me, that's one of my favorite ones. Uh, I'm not sure I'm just answering this question, but let me talk about it. Uh, it's respectable. Agreed. And the reason I love that, I love that because it comes from a Greek word, cosmios, from which we get our English word cosmetics. You yep. often say there's a Greek word you remember, cosmios, cosmetics. Here it's translated <laughs> respectable. And what it, it's a word, uh, it's a, it's, um, it's sort of parabolic. It's, um, it's a, uh, it's a word that, that is based on reputation, being respectable. And it's like, what Paul is saying is our lives should be like cosmetics to the gospel. What do cosmetics do? Hopefully they make us look good, smell good. Yeah. 
okay? When people see the way we're living, they're attracted to us and the gospel. And that's why uh, one place Paul uses the verb adorn. Your lives should adorn the gospel. That's the word cosmeo. Your lives are to cosmeo the gospel. Your lives are to be like cosmetic to the gospel. Adorn. That's what adornment is, attracting. And so uh, to me, that is, is such an incredible thing. It came home to me in my own experience, and I shared this, and I'll share it quickly, but we moved into a home when we lived in Wheaton, Illinois, the first home we ever had. You I remember the story? story about the yard. Yeah. 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 And, and we bought it from a pastor. It was only a three-year-old house, lovely home. But we moved in, and everybody was mad at us in the neighborhood. Not another thought, pastor. Why, why are you mad at me? Another pastor. Well, it didn't take me long to figure that out being a farm boy. Because I looked out, beautiful lot. But basically filled with dandelions. You know what happened when they turn yellow and then they turn white? Oh, yeah. And the people down at the end of the block had the most beautiful lawn. And then all these seeds went right onto their lawn. Yep. And he never, never dealt with that. And when he mowed the lawn, he left, I often say exaggerating, you could bail bail it. I mean, had piles of, of hay, never planted a tree, never planted a shrub. And so Elaine and I agreed. I said, honey, and I initiated, I said, rather than pay, you know, furnishing our living room, we've got to, we've got to furnish our lawn. And so I went out and I had a friend who helped me. He bought, I bought uh, trees and got rid of the dandelions and planted shrubs and one day, shortly after that, a woman went by who was the mother-in-law of the guy down the street that was the maddest. And she said, you're wonderful. I can't <laughs> believe it. They knew I was a man of the cloth. Okay? Quote, end quote. And the whole reputation, our reputation changed. And hopefully the reputation of future pastors, you know, or pastors yeah. But that pastor, I often say, was so busy doing the ministry, he didn't have time to do the Lord's business. And that's keep up that lawn. Because if he chose to live there, he had a responsibility to be what? Respectable. Cosmos. Well, and I would even say uh, earning, I would even say this. I would say the greatest gift that a person, can, a man can give me is his respect of me. And the greatest gift my wife can give me is her respect. I want that desperately. Right. And a man needs to be worthy of other men respecting him. That's right. So which is even Absolutely. beyond respectable. Like we don't want guys who are elders in our church that aren't respected by the other men. We don't, you know, men need to have that spot where people respect him. Absolutely. And that's a facet of having a good reputation. Absolutely. That's just one of those important things. There's another one uh, that I, I would love to talk about to me is one of the most incredible qualities that's most misunderstood. But you're leading this show, not me. No, go oh. for it. I want you to keep, I want to talk about okay. your book. So I want to hear the highlights okay. and the things you really well, love. It's, it's the word uh, able to teach. And uh, when you just look at the way that's translated, uh, you get the idea that it's being able to communicate the Bible or to teach, or we think pedagogy, uh, which is a big word, old word for methods and, and the way we teach. But boy, it's, it came home to me. In fact, um, I've got my Bible open to the passage. Paul used the word 
the doctikos twice. Mm-hmm. And here it's a list in First Timothy. He just simply says the doctikos is translated able to teach. But when you go to Second Timothy, he used it the second time. And notice what he said. Here he gives a commentary on the word didactikos. He said to Timothy, he said, reject foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but the Lord's servant must be gentle to everyone didactikos. Able to teach, and then he says, and patient, instructing his opponents, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance. The word didactikos is character. It's not our techniques. It's the character behind our communication. And what Paul is simply saying here is, that if we're able to teach, as he means it, we're able to respond to people who even attack us in a non-defensive way. We're able to respond with patience. We're able to respond with, uh, with gentleness. And then if we, res- it's really what the proverb says that a gentle answer turns away wrath, yeah. turns away anger. And, and so with that in mind, I was sharing this with, um, a group of elders, and I had known about one of our elders who had gone through an experience. And you, you probably read the story, but he yep. happened to be the CEO of uh, Texas Savings Alone at that time, was the largest, uh, you know, uh, banking industry throughout the state of Texas. And uh, he was CEO, and he was an elder in our church, and I'd heard what happened. And uh, I, I shared the story with the elders, and then Mike, his name, verified it happened, but he was at home one Saturday and there was a clutter outside the house and he looked out and a school bus had pulled up in front. A group of people had gotten out of there. They were carrying placards and they were picketing his house. There was a knock at the door and a guy standing there with a document and he said, would you sign this document, Mr. Cornwall? He didn't know who Cornwall was. It was a confession that savings and loan organizations have been redlining minorities, which yeah. was a big yeah. issue in, in Washington, D.C. And Mike knew what was happening, and he said, well, you know, um, I would like to talk to you about this. By the way, there was a, it was a setup because there was a guy with a camera sitting next to him ready to take a picture of him slamming the door so they have on the front page of the Dallas Morning News. Yep. You know, CEO, <laughs> you know, slams door in face of group. But but Mike said, you know, I'd like to talk to you about this. He said, in fact, why don't you all come on in? You know, invited all of them. Sharon will put on a pot of coffee. They couldn't believe their eyes and their ears, but they laid down their placards. They came in. He served them coffee. She served them coffee, and he started sharing his experience. And by the way, he said, you probably don't know this, but I've been concerned about um, uh, being uh, prejudiced, prejudiced in the in Texas for years as a young boy. In fact, he said I I sat on the board as chairman of the board of the Martin Luther King Center and building the Martin Luther King Center. Their eyes got real big, and uh, 
he went on to share. And then at one point in time, he said, you know, uh, I've always been concerned about prejudice against, against people. And that's why they were picketing, not just against him. Yeah. He was a target for the, the Texas, you know, the banking industry. And he said, um, in, the, in the house next door, he said, I was in a Bible study and I learned that Jesus Christ was the savior of the world. And I became a Christian and, and he said, uh, now I'm really concerned about prejudice. And you could hear amens all over the place. <laughs> and they left, shook hands, walked out. The guy, by the way, that led that event flew in from Chicago and was the guy leading this, knew nothing. This guy was sitting through this and he, he couldn't believe what was happening because mm -hmm. there were Christians in that group. Oh, whoa. And I got up afterwards and I said to these elders, I said, here's what it means to be able to teach. This is a perfect illustration. This is character. These people came. It was unfair. He could have said, this is my property. You know, don't do this to me. He could have slammed the door, but he was patient. He was gentle. He, he instructed his opponents with gentleness. That's able to teach. It's character. And so, to me, that's what makes a good husband. That kind of character. Being teachable. That's what it means. Being sensitive. Not responding with anger. Responding with gentleness. Um, makes a good father. Talk about, boy, that'll preach with your kids. Oh, you know it. That character. That's what makes a good pastor. That makes a good elder, whether he's full-time or part-time. So that's, that's eyes really get big on that one. Well, and, and another, isn't it? Well, here's isn't the other it thing. interesting? Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting that that's the only quality that sounds like something other than character until you understand it, and it is character. Well, and the funny part, in on page 99 of your book, under this section, Able to Teach, you wrote a man... This is profound, and this speaks to what you're talking about. A man who is able to teach is a person who is not in bondage to himself. And I think of his anger, his pride, his insecurities, his defensiveness. And a lot of times we will have a discussion. I've seen this a lot recently, actually, where the, the first response is anger and defensiveness. Well, that's that's not what Paul is after here. He's saying, you know calm down. You know, I, I, one of the things I do in church on Sunday, even my own church, and I practice this after speaking or whatever, is somebody comes up to me with a negative reaction. Instead of defending myself, I go, gosh, that's really, I appreciate that. Can I pray about that and get back to you? Oh, that's, that's, that's disarming. Because I don't want to deal with yeah. it right now because I have, you know, we have a rule that we laugh about. Never send an angry email, angry text, sit back and let it simmer. That's right. So, so good. Hey, we're like out of time, but I want to go over because I'm so engaged with you and what you have to say. I want to talk about the word pugnacious. It's not yeah. a word we use in everyday language, and I, I'm going to hack this to death. The Greek word is plektes. Mm -hmm. So can you walk us through this word and why Paul would use this phrase and why we would use the word pugnacious to describe a quality that a man wants to avoid? Because it really means abusive. Yeah. You see, right before that, he says not quick-tempered. Yeah. See, there's continuity there. 
being quick tempered. Now, not all anger, you know, we talked about anger, but not all anger is sin. Agreed. Paul, Paul said, be angry and sin not. And we sin when we're quick tempered, out of control, when the sun goes down on our wrath. But he, this is an extension, another word, which is an extension of anger out of control, to be pugnacious verbally or physically is being abusive. It's abusive. It's, and, and by the way, all these words are related. Oh, They're yeah, of course. They all weave together. But this is an extension of sinful anger. This is anger out of control. This is anger that hurts people with words, and it hurts people if you are physical. And some of these guys were physical. We ought to realize what they were converted out of in that New Testament culture. Well, and, and we're talking about a day and age that uh, the uh, uh, patria potestas was engaged, where a man could literally kill kids. He could kill. Right. Or or kill his wife. Or kill he his wife. He could have his wife killed. One, and he That's had right. three women in his life. He had his, his uh, wife. If he were wealthy. Yes. If he were wealthy. And so you've got this situation where there's a, there's a lording it over others in fear and wrath. That's right. Because these women, these wives in some instances, had no choice. They had to be submissive or he could have them killed or he could divorce them. And if he divorced them, a lot of them were out on the street and they had no way to make a living. Can I ask you a theological question? Can, uh, yeah, can I ask you a theological question? So sure. in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. And then in the next verse, he says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Right. We tend to shrink back from preaching that in the Western church. But is it not true that the fact that Paul listed the women ahead of the men in the ordering of this passage would have caused an uproar and wouldn't it have been monumental in the church? Because he didn't start with men love your wives as Christ loved the church. He started as with wives submit to your husbands and he put them in the ordering ahead of the men. And as you know, ordering was very, very important in the gospels. You know, Peter was always ordered as the first apostle. And so would you think that would cause kind of an uproar because that was monumental for women? Could be, except they were in process of coming out of that, getting insight, yeah. learning. Okay. It's just a whole new insight, but see the whole context there. Jim is right before that. He says we're to teach and admonish one another and to submit to one another. Correct. And then he says wives to husbands. But he's already said all of us are to submit to one another. Yeah. Then he says wives to husbands. And then he said husbands love. But he's already said Ephesians 5.1, we're all to love as Christ loved. Why would he say Love one and love your wife as Christ loved the church, because that was his greatest weakness. Why would he say to women, submit to one another? Because they were coming out of this domination, this control, mm -hmm. and their tendency is to overreact and misuse their freedom. So we're all to submit to one another, and we're all to love one another as Christ loved us, but in a special way, God has established roles where he says, I'm to love my wife as Christ loved me. And if I love her as Christ loved me, that's the ultimate in submission because I'm willing to die for her. Wow. I am willing to die. That's the ultimate in submission. 
Wow, love covers so it all. It does. It does. Oh. Well, I, I'm way over time, and Dale's giving me the time thing, but I got one more question, if that's okay. Oh, hey, is that okay? No, well, I'm, oh, I'm not in charge of your time. I want to honor you because you've given no, us no, no, time. No, no, I'm free. So on page 162, you're talking about uh, that the attribute of or the quality of being a peacemaker, you know, a person who is uh, what's the exact word here? I'm going to scroll back up. Peaceable or uncontentious. So here's my question, Gene. So I believe there's a difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. How do you see a peacemaker being a manly qualification and a peacekeeper being one that would not be? Tell me what you define those well, so a, a little more. Give me a, a little more context a, a, a on that. A peacekeeper, a person who's committed to peace, is somebody who will work through uh, the process of conflict in a healthy way to a solution and a resolution instead of a peacekeeper who wants to cover everything and make sure nothing blows up or goes public, but they want to keep the peace. And a lot of times there's an avoidance of the issue because in their mind, keeping the peace is better than making the peace and coming to a solution. Yeah. And that certainly wouldn't be part of being a peacemaker because you're in denial. I mean, yeah, you're avoiding responsibility and, uh, uh, I don't like conflict either. Yeah, uh, me either. I don't like conflict, but if I'm going to be mature, I need to address conflict and I need to do it in a biblical way. <clears throat> so to me, uh, peacekeeper, the way you've defined it certainly reflects immaturity yeah. rather than maturity. And being a peacemaker really reflects maturity because confronting issues is part of being a peacemaker. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Yeah. In other words, in a mature way, uh, not in denial. You're not in denial. You're a peacemaker. <clears throat> and you you make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That's the general interpretation. But that involves also confrontation in certain situations with your kids. Yeah. Well, I just want to be careful because the word uncontentious can appear to be just back away and just don't, No, you know what I'm saying? People could read that and go, oh, absolutely, I'm not going to yeah. go there. I'm supposed to be no. uncontentious. I'm like, well, that's the same as being a coward. <laughs> that's right. So, hey, that's Gene, right. man, I, I, I appreciate it. We've kind of gone way over, but this has been really worth it. Guys, uh, uh, you might want to check this book. I'd really encourage you to add this book to your library. It really should be in every I had a guy from Louisiana ask me, what are my top 10 recommendations for manhood books? And this is one of those easily. Until next time, feel the wet sand on the arena floor. Hear the deafening roar of the crowd. Taste the sweetness of victory. Smell the stench of battle. Get in the game. Get dirty. Grind it out. And be a man. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men from around the world and find out the type of dad you are.